Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast series. My name is Steve Lewis. I am the Assistant Director of Global Strategic Alliances for CSAIL at MIT. In this podcast series, I will interview principal researchers at CSAIL to discover what they're working on and how it will impact society. Samuel Madden is a distinguished professor of computing at MIT's Schwarzman College of Computing. His research is in the area of database systems, focusing on database analytics and query processing from clouds to sensors to modern high-performance server architectures. He co-directs the Data Systems for AI Lab initiative and the Data Systems Group at MIT. Madden was named one of MIT Technology Review's 35 Innovators Under 35 in 2005, and he received an NSF Career Award in 2004 and a Sloan Foundation Fellowship Award in 2007. Sam has also received several Best Paper Awards, including a Test of Time Award in 2019 for his work on the VTRAC system in Census. He was the co-founder of Vertica Systems, acquired by HP in 2012, and a founder of Cambridge Mobile Telematics, a leading vendor of smartphone-based technologies for making roads safer by making drivers better. Sam, thanks for your time today. Let's start off by telling our listeners the focus area of your research and maybe some of your bold aspirations. Sure, Steve. It's great to be here. Uh, so my research is in the area of software systems for data management. So we, we build large-scale pieces of software that help people access their data faster or more easily or to get access to new types of data. So that's everything from next generation versions of systems like relational databases like Oracle that people may have heard of to you know, kind of far out new systems that let you do things like write the equivalent of an SQL query over a large archive of video or that maybe allow you to get access to a, a really large archive of you know, high rate sensor data, for example. And we, we build these kind of high level interfaces that let people you know, get to their data efficiently. I see. We'll talk a little bit about databases uh, later on in the podcast because you've done some interesting work there. Can you give us your opinion about how far can AI technology be pushed into other application domains? First of all, I, I think there's a lot of hype around AI, as you're alluding to. And, um, you know, we're in, in my research anyway, certainly have spent some time looking at how AI or really when we say AI, we mean, you know, machine learning technology. And I, I would even say, go a step further and say, we really think of this as, you know, incorporating uh, components like machine learning that can make predictions about things into software systems. And so there's been a lot of interest in these sort of machine learning components, using machine learning components as a part of a software system because software systems are making decisions about things all the time. So for example, your database system or your operating system might have, you know, some queries that it has to execute, a, a pool of queries that it has to execute. It has to allocate those queries to some hardware that it's, you know, has, has available to it. And it wants to allocate that, those queries in the most efficient way to execute them as quickly as possible. That's a classical scheduling problem. And there are lots of classical solutions to this, but it turns out that if you look at the machine learning literature, there are these uh, techniques based on things like reinforcement learning, uh, the, the kinds of things that get used when you're, um, you know, trying to train a, uh, an AI to play a video game, for example, where it has a set of decisions 
that it has to make and those decisions you know yield some kind of outcome or reward well you can think of scheduling just like that too like the you know the, the computer's sort of playing a game where it's trying to schedule these little things that it has to do as quickly as possible in order to get the reward which is to you know use the fewest resources possible in order to do this so that's a really simple way in which you can take some off-the-shelf machine learning component and you know sort of repurpose it to help solve a hard systems problem even though you know the when you go look at the machine learning literature they, they probably weren't thinking about scheduling problems for example as the the you know problem they're trying to solve and I, I think from from my perspective and i think for a lot of us at ccl what's cool about this way of thinking about it is that not only do you solve this systems problem but often when you get into the details of it you realize that there are things about the way the original machine learning problem was formulated uh that aren't quite right. Like playing video games is kind of like scheduling tasks, but it's not exactly like scheduling tasks. And so you actually discover ways in which you can go back and modify the underlying algorithms as well. So, so let's talk a little bit about databases. Databases have been around for a long time. Can you talk about some of the challenges of building software to process and manage data? You, you mentioned about a scheduling problem and I assume that's part of it. Yeah. Well, so Sure, there's, I think, yes, it's true on one hand, you know, the, the product that many of us think of as a relational database system has been out there for a long time. It was, you know, the, the you know, 1980s, people figured out this sort of abstraction for a database system. And uh, actually for a long time in the 90s and 2000s, I don't think there was that much that was happening. But what we've seen in, in recent years, partly because of the real increase in sort of how people use computers, the number of applications for computers, and the amount of data that computers produce is a real interest in a diversity of different systems for working with different types of data. And that's kind of what excites me. It's not just about, you know, a relational database system is like a system that stores tables of facts about employees or something. It's not just about that. Now it's about video and sensor data and audio and all this other stuff that has to be stored and processed and accessed. And that's really inspired me, you know, through, through my whole research. And there's just a ton of new problems there when you start thinking about a new you know data type um i think the other the other set of new problems often are when some sort of new way of computing arises so for example you know 10 15 years ago cloud computing became the next big thing and there as a result of cloud computing has been you know a decade or more of research on how you take this classic abstraction of a database system and you make it work in this cloud computing infrastructure and so a lot of the really hot cool you know startup companies these days like you probably have heard of snowflake uh you know snowflake is an example of a company that you know essentially took this research that was having not my research but research in the community that i work in over the last decade on how to you know build database systems for the cloud and they built a really compelling product offering that's super competitive against the existing players in the space because they had this sort of purpose built system for the cloud and now everybody's moving all of their compute infrastructure to the cloud mm -hmm. So one of your um, more recent research projects is called SageDB. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that project? Yeah, so SageDB sort of coming back to this theme of integrating uh, you know, machine learning, AI technologies into database systems. The, the idea in SageDB that we set out to solve was really to, to build from the ground up a new database system that used uh, machine learning and all of its components from you know the storage system to the, the scheduling system like I talked about to database systems have these you know complicated systems that uh, 
are responsible for translating a high-level SQL query like select average salary of employees into an execution plan, and that those things are called query optimizers. So sort of revisiting each of these components of a database system where we think about how to integrate machine learning into that. Um, and this has been really, I would say this project has been pushed by my colleague, uh, Tim Kroska. He's done a bunch of amazing work in this space and I'm sort of along for the ride, but um, it's been it's been very fun to sort of imagine this. So, uh, you know, like I, I gave the example of scheduling, that's one area where we've, we've done some work, but you know, another area that Tim has worked on a lot is in this area that we call learned storage systems. Um, and so sort of the observation here is that classical data structures for storing data don't assume anything about or typically don't assume anything about the structure or layout of the data. So, you know, a, a B tree, for example, the data structure that a database system uses to store data so that it can look up, you know, a particular value efficiently. So you can ask a B tree, what's Sam's salary? And it can, instead of looking at all the records to find Sam's salary, it can directly offset to the record that is, is Sam's salary, right? But this B tree structure doesn't assume anything about the way that the data is internally organized or stored. And the sort of observation that we, and you know, really Tim calls this, uh, he, he calls it instance optimized, but the sort of observation that we had is that if you know something about the way that the data is distributed, if you use machine learning to learn something about the way that the data is distributed, you can exploit that knowledge to make the data structures more compact or more efficient. So for example, if the data is um, mostly in order then, or mostly sorted, or the, the, the values that you're storing are, you know, uh, occupy a very dense short range, you might, instead of using a B tree, you might be able to represent the data using some other data structure like an array. And you could build a system that could dynamically make a decision about a B tree versus an array. Um, but you can actually do um, even, it turns out there are a bunch of techniques you can do that are, are better than this, that use kind of simple machine learning, but in clever ways to build these really efficient new data structures. So it's been really fun. Um, you know, we've we've sort of looked at all these different components of the data processing stack and, um, you know, been able to, you know, I think achieve state-of-the-art results in a number of different, you know, sub-problems in the, in the database field. So it's been, it's been cool. Yeah, we had uh, Tim on our uh, podcast uh, last week, and we were talking about his work in, in those optimized systems. And, well, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, that there's still more work to be done in databases. You know, I think yeah. that was the, the net net of it is the, you know, they could be faster, more optimized, more intelligent, I guess. So, so let's switch subjects a little bit and talk about uh, a subject that's near and dear to my heart video. Um, you've recently working on some systems for processing video. Can you talk a little bit about your work in this space? Yeah, so I think this is a really good example of a place where, you know, sort of machine learning, AI meets systems and you can build systems that have very new capability, interesting new capabilities. So we've been, we were sort of inspired by, you know, if you go out and you look at what machine learning can do for, for example, object recognition or scene recognition, um, you know, you can give a machine learning algorithm a photograph and it can identify all kinds of interesting things in it. So we said, okay, this is a pretty cool new capability. What if we tried to build a database system that used this capability as its, you know, sort of core thing to answer questions. So instead of find the, you know, average salary of my employees in my database table, what if I wanted to, you know, find the, 
you know, count the number of red cars in some archive of video that I have, right? Um, and so you might say, well, okay, that sounds pretty easy. I've got this off the shelf machine learning algorithm. I'll just run it on every frame of this video. I'll find all the red cars and then I'll count them up. And that would be a, a solution to this. But, you know, when you start actually trying to build systems that work this way, what you find is that these machine learning algorithms, they're, they weren't typically built with, uh, real high performance in mind. So imagine like some of the, the people we've been working with are like uh, cities, for example, who have, you know, hundreds or thousands of traffic cams that are like, you know, at intersections and they want to do these, I don't know, like traffic planning kind of exercises where they understand how intersections are being used or how many cars are at intersections at different times of day, the kinds of things that they would have to use manual, you know, counting now they could replace with video, but they need to be able to answer these kind of high level questions about what's happening in these scenes. Um, and if they try to just naively apply these machine learning algorithms to every frame of the video, it turns out it's just crazy prohibitively expensive because it takes, you know, it might take, um, you might be able to do this at like one third of real time on a, mm -hmm. or three times real time on a GPU, right? But that means if I've got 10,000 cameras, I need like 3000 GPUs to keep up with a continuous video feed, right? It's just like a crazy expense. Nobody is gonna do this. So we said, let's try to build software systems that don't require us to run on every frame of video. They're much, much more efficient by that than this. And we developed all these techniques to, you know, do things like subsample the video, look at fewer frames, focus on the portions of frames that tend to have interesting stuff happen in them, uh, be able to, you know, skip over periods of time when we can guess that nothing is happening, uh, or be able to exclude certain kinds of detections from uh, needing to be processed. Like if I'm looking for red cars, well, maybe I don't, you know, I look for red things first, and then I figure out whether there's a car there, or, you know, so I, these kinds of optimizations like this that sort of exploit, you know, the relative difficulty of different types of computations and run the computations in the right order to be able to get to the answer as efficiently as possible. So um, we've built a couple of cool systems. My, my student Fabian Bastani has this uh, uh, a really cool paper that appeared last year in Sigma called Miris, M-I-R-I-S, that's uh, all about how do you do this kind of video processing um, really efficiently. So it's been super fun. I've got to learn a lot about, you know, computer vision technology and, you know, also, you know, build what I think is a cool new system. And we've got, got some people who are starting to use it, which is always fun to have, you know, people using your software. So. Yeah, that, that is great. And, and I could definitely see how if you were, you know, average 30 frames a second and maybe high resolution video, you know, how that would be so expensive computationally to try to do any real-time analytics on. You are also the co-founder and chief scientist uh, for Cambridge Mobile Telematics, uh, which is a startup company. Can you tell us more about the company and your work there? Yeah, so this is a, a company I actually grew out of some research that I did in CSAIL with my colleague, Hari Balakrishnan. Um, we, we had a project, uh, you know, many years ago now called Cartel, that's car telecommunications, and where we were putting sensors on vehicles and using them to measure things about the world. And we, um, you know, in, spun out this this company, Cambridge Mobile Telematics. Um, and, you know, at the time, we weren't exactly sure, you know, what the application was going to be, but we, we eventually hit on uh, road safety and safe driving as a really critical um, application area. Uh, and... So the, the company is um, basically about making our roads safer by making people better drivers. We do that using a combination of smartphone apps and 
some embedded hardware that we uh, put in the vehicles, like little, they look like little, actually I have one here, little toll transponders. You can't see this in the video, but I'm showing it to Steve. <laughs> on, the, on the podcast, you, you can't see this on the podcast, but I'm showing it to Steve. Does that go in the OB, uh, the onboard computer? So it doesn't go in the OBD, no, it, it gets affixed to the, like where your toll transponder does, okay. it's battery powered. Um, anyway, we, we have these, this smartphone apps and sensors that measure how people drive. Um, and then give people feedback to help them become better drivers. And so um, we've had a lot of success, uh, particularly in the uh, personal lines insurance business. So uh, many of you have probably seen these you know, ads on, on TV for uh, safe driving programs, don't mess with my discount, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure. Um, and so those are really powered. Many of those programs are powered by the technology that we build at, at CMT, Cambridge Mobile Telematics. Um, and you know it's 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 pretty exciting because on one hand there's a lot of underlying interesting you know sort of technology that came out of CSAIL like how do you take this data from vehicles it looks like you know what we're looking at are things like the acceleration signal from your smartphone which you have to you know recognize when there's driving happening and pick out the part of the acceleration signal that represents the you know the the acceleration and deceleration of the vehicle and then you can build a profile as to whether somebody's a safe driver or not based on how they accelerate or decelerate so there's a lot of technology to make this work but then you know it gets packaged up in these applications that are really about on one hand, maybe people are getting a discount, but it's also giving you all kinds of feedback about how you could be a better or safer driver. And so we've got millions of people in the U.S. who are using this thing every day, you know, and you know we can show that this is, you know, reducing the accident rate by you know significant amounts. Like we see, you know, people who are actively engaged in these programs see 10, 20, 30 percent lower accident rates than people who don't use these programs. So you're making just this tremendous difference in road safety by, you know, sort of packaging up and, you know, sort of gamifying driving a little bit to get people to want to be better drivers and then incentivize them, you know, in some cases to do that through things like insurance discounts. Now, is this an app that end users could download off Play Store or is this something that they have to do in conjunction with their insurance provider? There, there is an app that you can get called Safest Driver, which we build, um, or insurance. Many insurance companies now offer versions of these apps, but the Safest Driver app, um, people can check it out, download it, install it. Um, it doesn't do anything except for measure your driving, give you some feedback, and tell you how to be a better driver. So, um, you know, signing up for it doesn't. There's no no commitment, no data being given to insurance companies or anything. So. So uh, you mentioned about CSAIL. Can you tell us about sort of your research efforts and how uh, CSAIL Alliance partners have maybe helped you with your research efforts? So I love to work with industry for a couple of reasons. And CSAIL Alliances is the primary way that I connect with in industry sponsors. Um, you know, I think the sort of transactional part of it, of course, is that uh, the, you know, some of these industry programs fund the research that we need to, you know, support the graduate students and, uh, you know, do all the cool research we've been talking about. And that's great. But, you know, I think from my point of view, the more valuable thing almost about uh, industry is that it gives you a, an eye for what are the problems that really matter. Like, you know, it's easy to sit in our office or in, in this case, sit in my office at home, not not sitting in, in CCL yet, but hopefully we'll be back there soon. But sit in your office in CCL and sort of imagine what people might want. But when you can go talk to in, in, you know industrial sponsors about, well, what's the problem you really have? Um, that there's no better way to sort of motivate the research that you're doing. So 
um, you know, it's been really great. In fact, uh, you know, the, the CMT itself was, you know, we, we had this technology for measuring driving and we actually, you know, sort of discovered the connection to uh, safe driving and insurance applications by talking to industrial sponsors that we'd met through, through MIT and CSAIL. So. How about that? So what excites you most about the research that you're doing? Um, I mean, I just like building cool software systems. I mean, I think at some level, um, most of the software systems I work on are sort of motivated by you know, some sort of data processing or sort of some sort of data capture. But I, I'm, I'm kind of a computer geek at heart, a software geek at heart. And I just like building, you know, cool software that doesn't exist and hasn't existed before or figuring out how to, you know, build a better mousetrap or a faster database system or whatever it is. So, um, you, you know, I, I feel like it's just, I've got the best job in the world because, you know, that's what I get to do every day. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. And, and what would you recommend to a young researcher just starting out in computer science to work on? Well, I think the first thing I would say is um, on the topic of AI and AI will eat the world. You know, there's a lot of people who are, um, you know, coming into computer science thinking that all computer science is, is AI. And feel like I, I'm sort of a poster child for, you know, though I do work on AI a little bit, you know, I, there's a whole lot more to computer science than just AI and machine learning and being a little bit application focused, uh, you know, focusing on building software systems that, you know, real people want. Uh, there is a, a ton of, you know, really cool work to be done there still. And, you know, I think it's a, as a young person, it's tempting to jump into the thing that everybody else is doing. But one thing that I found in my research is that um, oftentimes the most successful research projects are finding the place where other people aren't and, you know, pushing on that place as opposed to trying to do the same thing that everybody else is doing. Um, and so I would encourage people to, you know, think broadly, look, you know, outside of what everybody else is doing. And, you know, when academia works, that's the great thing about it is that we can, you know, push on new things that people haven't thought of before and, and make progress there. That's good advice. Well, Sam, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate you participating in the CSAIL Alliances podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.csail.mit.edu and listen to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliances podcast and stay ahead of the curve.